Thanks, Daniel. Well, my name is Ron Cool. I'm one of the pastors here at Hillside as well. And uh, again, just welcome to all of you. We're going to continue this morning, uh, this series that we've mentioned already, talking about those last 24 hours, the 24 hours leading up to and including the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. We're calling this 24, the journey to the cross. And basically, we're looking at the time uh, almost 2,000 years ago, from sunset on a, on a Thursday to sunset on a Friday. For the Jewish people, a day began at sunset. So this is literally one day for them. This is how they would look at a day. And, and, and just kind of to remind you of, of where we've been in that. Kevin mentioned it. It travels all over Jerusalem. We start for the first five hours from about seven till midnight in the upper room. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he does the Last Supper and he teaches them about prayer and about unity. About midnight, they travel to the Garden of Gethsemane, going across Jerusalem through the temple probably, and there they pray for about three hours. Jesus is in prayer there, uh, and, and then he's arrested about 3 a.m. Uh, they would not have taken him through the temple, so I'm saying down the Kidron Valley, uh, up here, someplace up to that upper city area where the Palace of Caiaphas is, maybe three quarters of a mile, and again, quite a bit uphill, uh, like 400 feet raised in elevation, so think of a 40-story building and going up all the stairs for that. At the palace of Caiaphas, Jesus is declared guilty. He's deemed worthy of death by the religious leaders, by the elders and the the chief priests, the pastors, and so on. Uh, They declare that Jesus needs to die, but they need the Romans to be a part of this. So at about six six o'clock in the morning, uh, they send him over to Pilate there. Pilate doesn't get anything out of Jesus. He wants to get rid of him. And so at 6.30 or so, Pilate sends Jesus over there to to Herod, who was not that far away. Uh, Herod doesn't get anything out of Jesus, so he ends up sending uh, Jesus back to Pilate, all right? Uh, About 7 o'clock in the morning. And then there's about an hour and a half there where Jesus is flogged, where Jesus is, uh, Pilate is trying to figure out what to do, trying to really release Jesus. Um, And then it's about 8.30 in the morning. Uh, when Jesus makes his way to uh, Golgotha, to Calvary, to the place where he is crucified, and he's crucified at 9 o'clock. As we've been going through this, what we've primarily been doing, if you've been with us, uh, is we've been focusing on the people Jesus met and, and how he interacted with them. We talked about how he interacted with the disciples, how he interacted with Caiaphas, how he interacted with Pilate, how he interacted with Herod. We've been, we've been thinking about that, but, but there's something else. And I kind of want to redo that journey a little bit and, and just this morning kind of focus on, on something that's been in the background and, and something that in a lot of ways I'd rather not think about, but something that I think is pretty important that we do think about, and that is the, the trauma and, and the agony of Jesus, the unbelievable suffering that Jesus was going through. It was emotional, it it certainly was, it was mental, that was certainly part of it. But I also this morning really want to focus on the fact that it was physical. It was physical, and Jesus suffered physically and excruciatingly beyond anything you and I can imagine. And I want us to think about it, I want us to chew on that, I want us to slow down and just look at it. In in so many ways, like I said, I'd rather not. I I went to see the passion of the Christ and and I didn't want to, but I feel like it's good to do that every once in a while and to see that and to realize that this really was unbelievable. Let's start in the Garden of Gethsemane. Even though Jesus was not beaten there, uh, he was in prayer for three hours. And you say, well, yeah, that's okay. But, but, but Luke tells us this wasn't just a spiritual battle. This wasn't just an emotional thing. But you know how it is when you are deeply intense into something, you are physically tired at the end. And Luke tells us that Jesus was so intense in his prayer. 
He says this, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And so Jesus is there, and, and he is praying so hard. He is so intense that his sweat, I mean, blood vessels are breaking physically. His body is literally breaking down as, as he does this and as he prays, and his blood is coming out of him just because of the intensity of that. So if you can imagine that for three hours for three hours of, of just being that intense. I mean, you would be like a wet rag at the end of it, all right? But then Jesus is taken to the palace of Caiaphas. Again, he's challenged. He, he's deemed worthy of death. This, this is what it says in Mark 14. They all condemned him as worthy of death. And, and then we get some physical action. Then some of the religious leaders. Again, we're talking about pastors. We're talking about elders. We're talking about leaders in the community. They began to spit at him. I don't think I've really literally ever had anybody spit in my face. And I don't think I've ever done it to anybody else. But they spit at Jesus. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists, stuck, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. They punched him in the face. They punched him in, in the ribs. They punched him time and time again. And then the guards took him and beat him. And, and we looked at the place where this might have happened. It was... Uh, in a basement room like this, they probably beat him with rods. This is a one-inch dowel. They probably used something like this. And I want you to just hear this. That's Jesus. Cracking ribs destroying his body. There was not a limit on how many times you could hit somebody with a rod. And it happened time and time again. That sound will stick with you. At Pilate's place, the only thing worse than, or the only thing second to being crucified was being flogged. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. What they would have had was a, a stand, maybe this, maybe lower, but Jesus would have been put over it like this. His hands would have been tied, and his clothes would have been off. He would have been completely naked. I want to show one picture from the Passion of the Christ. If you don't want to see this, just you can close your eyes or whatever, but this is certainly not the grossest one, but just to see, this is the setup of what it would have looked like. Um, and this would be at the beginning because he's still got part of his back left. They used a flagrum, a scourge. It would have looked like this. It had a wooden handle. It had leather thongs, leather strips. But what really made it nasty was these things. Those are pieces of bone, pieces of glass, rocks, marbles. And what they would do with this is they would swing it and they would hit and then they would drag it across because what that would do is it would bite into the skin and it would then rip it and and again the romans or the jewish people had a law you could only be beaten with a scourge 39 times god said 40 they said let's just be safe let's go 40 minus 1 39 the romans had no laws these guys were expert in causing pain they would have first ripped off the layer of skin it would have been completely destroyed. It would have then tore at every muscle in his back and possibly even taking out chunks of bone. If you can imagine these guys there, 
They would have been covered in blood. Not just Jesus, but they would have been covered in blood. Two of them, one on each side, taking turns. Why did you flog somebody? Think about this with me. Why did you flog someone? First, most obviously, punishment. To make them pay for their wrongs, right? I mean, that's why we spank our kids sometimes or make them do a timeout. But punishment, make them pay for their wrongs. But there was also something else. It was to scare them and others. It was a deterrent. But there was a third reason, and it had to do specifically with flogging, and that was that that it would mark that person as a criminal not to be trusted. If you survived a flogging, and many people died during them, if you survived it, you would never be the same. Your back would bear those scars. The, the skin, again, almost all of the skin has been ripped off your back. It, and, and, and it's going to maybe grow together, but you are going to bear scars for the rest of your life. You couldn't be flogged and not have somebody know it for the rest of your life. And, and, and I want you to think about something with me. There's something that I found really interesting a couple of weeks ago as, as, as Daniel was preaching. Because in the Gospel of John, John makes it clear that Pilate says, I think he's innocent and then he has him flogged before he decides to hand him over to be crucified. After Pilate had him flogged, he's still trying to get Jesus released. He's still trying to set Jesus free. In verse 5 of 19, I don't have it here. Verse 12 of 19, he tried again and again. So why did he flog him? What was the purpose of that? Here's what I think is going on there. I think what, what Pilate is saying is, look, I don't want to have this guy get killed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to flog him. And, and, and Jesus is now just absolutely destroyed. And Pilate brings him out, John tells us. Pilate brings Jesus out in front of everybody. And, and he says, here's your king. Here is the man. And, and I think what Pilate is getting at, I think what Pilate was hoping for is, is to say to them, who's going to follow this guy? Who, who wants to be around this guy? He, he's been beaten. He's been, he's been destroyed. He is not a threat to you anymore. I mean, seriously, what in the world? You're worried about him being the king? Do you think anybody's going to want to follow this guy? For the rest of his life, he will forever walk funny because of this event. He will forever, he will forever just be marked. It was like wearing, it was like wearing your, your criminal record on your back. Nobody would trust you again. And, and so Pilate is saying, can't you just let him go? He's nobody. He's nothing. There is nothing left to him. Nobody's going to want to follow a guy who has been destroyed like this. And just think about what it means for us to say, Lord, make me like Jesus. <laughs> I mean, Paul says, I want to be like Christ in his sufferings. And I want to be like Jesus in the way he treated people. But I don't know if I really want to be like Jesus of giving my life that way. I, I mean, Pilate, we don't like to think of Jesus this way because I don't want to follow this one. I want to follow the Jesus who's happy. I want to follow the Jesus who's winning. And I think Pilate's goal was to say, who wants to follow a loser? Who wants to follow somebody who's a dead man walking? This morning we have to ask ourselves, do I? Do I want to follow this one. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they slapped him in his face. Again, he's beaten. And in some ways, the guy can hardly stand up. 
And, and it is so painful. Mark tells us that the whole company did this. That's between three and 600. That's all of us. It's everybody in this room right now, plus maybe some others. It's amazing to think that people could do this. I'd like to believe I couldn't. But I'm not sure that's the case. And then the Golgotha, at Golgotha, the cross. Mark gives us an interesting little detail. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This was a, a painkiller. This was something to take away the edge. It's the only scrap of humanity we get in this from anybody other than Jesus. It's the only scrap of somebody doing something decently other than Simon of Cyrene. I mean, it's just... And Jesus didn't take it. And Jesus didn't take it. Because he knew that if he was going to drink that cup, he had to drink it to the bottom. And they crucified him. The Romans did this in a number of ways. We know that Jesus had holes in his hands or wrists in his feet. And and so perhaps it was something like this. Adam Hamilton provides this picture uh, in his book, 24 uh, Hours That Changed the World. But uh, about 40 years ago, they found um, somebody uh, who had been crucified. The the bodies often aren't found because nobody cared about them. But the, the nail holes came from the side, and that's why the suggestion is that perhaps Jesus had his feet to the side. The pain of having nails piercing your wrists, piercing your ankles, and and then hanging like this. I I read it this week, and maybe you've thought this. I've never really thought this before. When I think of the cross, I think of something 15, 20, 30 feet high, right? It's way up there. I have to look way up at Jesus. The Romans would not have done it that way. The cross was probably not that much taller than this. You could have touched Jesus. He he was low enough. You could have touched. When he was looking at that, he was closer than I am. He was lower than I am. It was unbelievably painful. I want you to do something a second. Just take a breath in and out. For most of us, maybe all of us, that didn't hurt. When you're crucified, again, Jesus' body is is completely torn apart in the back, so just against the rough cross. But you see, part of the the torture and the horribleness of crucifixion is is that you can't breathe. You can't breathe, because if you breathe, you have to pull down on your wrists in order to get your your muscles to expand, in order to open up your lungs. you got to pull down. Every time you pull down, you're just sending excruciating pain here and excruciating pain up up your legs. And and so a crucifixion victim would would be there and, and would literally hold their breath as long as they could until they had to breathe, because... As soon as they did, the pain would just be overwhelming again and, and their back would rub against the cross and it was, it was the most horrible thing and intended to be the most horrible thing. Josephus, the historian, says that it was the most pitiable of deaths. This was unbelievable. In, in these 24 hours, Jesus suffered extreme physical trauma and agony. And like I said, I'd, I'd rather not think about it. I'd rather kind of talk about, well, well tell me, you know, let's, let's talk about Pilate saying, what is truth, Jesus? Then we can have a nice physical, philosophical discussion. But the Gospels make it clear that Jesus was physically suffering beyond what anybody else. In fact, the word excruciating comes from crucifixion. 
It's the same word, excruciating. That's what's going on here. And, and, and the time we have left, what I want to ask is just one question, why? I mean, what's going on here? What is God saying to us? What are we supposed to see in this? Why did this happen? And, and, and a couple of things I want to throw out to say, not why. A couple of reasons that this didn't happen. And, and the first one is one that I find myself tempted to believe in sometimes. It, it's not because those people were so evil. When I think about this, what I'd like to say is I would never do this. What I'd like to say is I could never do that. I am not that way. We are civilized. We don't use those forms of punishment. We would never do that to somebody else. But if there is anything that the last hundred years of human history has proven to us, it is that each and every one of us is capable of of doing horrible things to other people. You know, we can sit here this morning and say, I would just never do that. I could never, I've never punched anybody, but put me in the right situation and I will. Never hit anybody with a stick, but put me in the right situation. I mean, whether it's the Holocaust. You know, we say, well, yeah, Hitler was evil. He was terrible, and and, and no doubt he was. But the fact is, it was normal people like you and me who were putting Jews in gas chambers, who were destroying others, who were whipping, who were beating, who were humiliating, who were mocking. You look in Africa at the Hutu and the Tutsis. I mean, they, these are two tribes who on, on one Sunday are, are worshiping together. And later that same week, one of them starts to just take machetes and cut off the heads of the others. And if you read about those things, six million di- people died. And, and they kept going to church every Sunday. They kept going to church every Sunday, and they did that. The fact of the matter is, I am completely capable of doing, I am Caiaphas. I am Caiaphas, I am Pilate, I am Herod, I am the guards. I, there's something fundamentally wrong inside of me. Because I am capable of that. And if we don't get that, we'll never get the cross. So it's not because those people were so evil. I'd like to believe that we would never do that. But these were the religious leaders. These were the best and the brightest. These people were like you and like me. And it's not because Jesus was a helpless victim. It's not that Jesus kind of started something and then he couldn't stop it and the ball just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. No, the fact is Jesus could have stopped this at any moment. We we talked about that with the the Sanhedrin, that that they couldn't get their story straight. And if Jesus had kept his mouth shut, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. (laughs) He needed to give them the evidence. He needed to say, look, I'll tell you this, I'm the Messiah, okay? I'll give you what you need because you can't even get this right on you. Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels. Jesus could have stopped this at any moment. Herod said, just walk across my swimming pool and you can have freedom. Pilate said, just give me something, Jesus, and I'll set you free. The fact is, this happened according to God's plans. The gospel, these accounts of what happens at the cross make it clear. John, in, in John 19, gives us this information. And again, some was kind of an odd fact, but when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Verse 24, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Psalm 22, verse 18. So this is what the soldiers did. God is speaking in this. This is not something that's outside of, of God's control. So why did this happen? 
two things, minor than major. I think the minor is so that we might see that there's something fundamentally wrong with each and every one of us. Part of what we're to see in this story is what we can do to people who don't deserve it. Part of what we're supposed to see in this story is that we are the ones nailing Jesus to the cross. It's to see that. But that's not the main thing we're supposed to see. The, the, the reason this happened at its heart was so that God could bring us back home to him. The, the reason Jesus went to the cross, the reason Jesus bled and died, the reason Jesus took that rod, the reason Jesus took that whip, the reason that Jesus' back was just destroyed, that he suffered in all of that agony, was so that you and I could come back home. And the big words that we use for this are the words substitutionary atonement. And, and, and if you say, oh, that's just too big. No, it's not. You can get this one, Okay. You know what atonement is. Atonement is, is restoring relationship. It literally comes from the, the, the English word is as at one meant. It's, an, it's a made-up English word to, to describe this. It's a restoring of a relationship. You've done that with your parents or your kids or a friend or a spouse where you've done something wrong. You've hurt that person, and you, you make atonement. You do something to say, I'm sorry. I've got to pay the price. I'm in your debt, and, and I'm sorry. And, and, and you get atoned, you get paid for, you get set right again. And that's part of what's going on is we're separated from God. There's something fundamentally wrong. We are sinners and, and, and that, that, that's, we need to pay the price, but we can't. And that's where we get the substitutionary. Someone took someone's place, right? In a basketball game, the coach sends somebody in, somebody else goes out. And so what's happening here and and what we need to see at the cross is the very core of why this changes everything and that is that what's happening here is Jesus took my place. There are other pictures of of what happens on the cross in the Bible and, and we'll look at some of them in the next few weeks but one of the key things that happens is Jesus takes my place. Jesus paid my price. That's substitutionary atonement and we see it throughout Scripture. It's so interesting to me. I just read a, a blog this past week of somebody who said, we've got to get rid of this substitutionary atonement language. It's just crass. It's, it's just, I mean, there's no way that, that, that that's how this works. I mean, it's, it's, not about, it's not about God's wrath being satisfied. It's not about justice. It's about God showing us what love is. That's what we have to talk about more about love. Yeah, we've got to talk about love, but we don't understand love until we understand what it costs us, until we understand what it costs God. Isaiah 53, this is why I, I, I won't stop talking about substitutionary atonement, that Jesus took my place. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. I am capable of doing horrible things. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every one of those scourges should have been mine. Every one of those beatings with the rod should have been on my back. I was the one who deserved to die. The Lord laid on Jesus Father laid on the Son the iniquity of us all. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. God poured out our sins on him. He paid the price so that we could become righteousness of God. Paul in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Again, the scriptures make it clear what happens on the cross is atonement 
By substitution, Jesus takes my place. Peter agrees. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus took my place. Jesus paid my price. And that's why I think one of the most difficult things for us to get, but it's so important to personalize this and to say it was my sin. My sin that put him there. It was my fault. Why did this happen? Because I sinned. Why did this happen? Because I turned my back on God. And in a sense, I did all of this. I think it's important for us to see this. I think it's really difficult for us to see this. I don't like to look at that much gore. I don't like to look at that much pain. I don't like to look at that much. And I don't like to think that my sins are so bad. I mean, my sins are are pretty pedestrian. I I mean, I I don't rob banks and kill people. I don't do all sorts of exciting sins. I don't, and and to say, hold on, I, but you know what? You got to understand the depth of what sin really is. Sin isn't a joke. Sin isn't, it, it just breaks God. And it broke Jesus Christ. And we need to take the time. I I mean, that's, again, part of what we do in Lent. Part of why the the prayer event can be so powerful. Because we need to come face to face with who I can be. And who I am. And what I have done. That I, in a sense, am the one who has nailed those. And I ought to take some time to get to that place. But I must never stay there. Because as much as Jesus... As, as much as this happened because of me, as much as I did this, there is a deeper, more powerful thing we're supposed to see. And, 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 it, and, and, and somehow, we as Christians struggle with getting both of these things because on the one hand, we need to recognize that Friday is, is the worst day possible. But on the other hand, we need to recognize that what's really driving this, what's ultimately driving this, the reason that Jesus does all this is not because of, of the soldiers. And, and in a sense, it's not because of I'm doing it. It's because he loves us. At the core of what we see when we look at the cross is love. Somebody's saying, I love you this much, right? I love you this much, and I will do anything to bring you home. And and so we call this horrible Friday Good Friday. We call this horrible day the best day. Because I see my sin, but I also see God's amazing grace and God's amazing love. John 3.16 is in the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, we don't deserve it. What we deserve is, is everything Jesus got and more. We can't earn it. All we can do is receive it. Salvation, grace is free, but it's not cheap. And, and, and so what I want you to see is, yeah, my sin, your sin. More than that, what I want you to see in the cross is that God wants us to be with him. What this is about is God saying, you can't come home unless I give my son. It's about Jesus saying, brothers and sisters, you can't come and be with me until I die. God reaches out, and I want to just ask, are you going to receive the gift? Whether it's for the first time or the 20th time or the 100th time, will you once again this morning just be overwhelmed by God's amazing grace? If you've never really done that, then 
after the service, please come and talk to me. Talk to Daniel. If you want to renew that, talk to us. But I'm going to go to God in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song about the cross. And just, I ask that you, again, you can stay seated, you can stand up, but I survey the cross and see love and pain mingled together in the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to think about this. We don't like to hear that sound, that gunshot sound and to think that that was Jesus to imagine the flesh being torn to imagine the, the, the muscles being ripped apart the bones being cracked and then Lord to have to admit it's our fault to have to admit God just crack us and break us not so that you can leave us but so that you can heal us so that we can be just looking at the cross and see that there was something deeper going on there, that there was a substitutionary atonement going on there, that you were taking our place. Father, thank you. And if we see that, Father, we will never be the same. And so, Father, let us walk out of here, yeah, aware of our sin, but even more aware of the size of your heart, even more overwhelmed by your amazing love, even more overwhelmed by the fact that we are free that the price has been paid and all we can do is say thank you. And so now we take time to survey the wondrous cross. Amen.